Well, we are in the book of Esther. This is part five of our journey through the book of Esther. And we are going to pick up our story in chapter five, verse one. It says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. It notes in verse 1 of chapter 5, this took place on the third day. The third day that is of the fast, the fast that Esther had called for in the previous chapter, back in chapter 4. And one of the things, even though it wasn't stated, it was implied and understood that along with this fast, prayer would have a company in it. So they've been fasting and praying. And Esther called for this fast because she understood, and we noted this last week, that she needed other people. She needed the support of this community and as well as the intervention of God. And this is really critical because far too often in our church hopping type of mentality, we, we don't recognize that we need a community of believers until it's too late, until we're in crisis mode. The last night, uh, Diana got a phone call from a girl. She says, my husband and I are getting a divorce. And Diana's been encouraging this girl and her husband to get involved in a, in a church for like so long so that he could have Christian friends. But it's usually not until those moments when we realize, oh yeah, a, a good Christian community would probably be really beneficial and serve me well. And we, we make no preparation for that. And we, we just, whatever, doesn't matter. I'm getting by just fine. Until moments like this happen when people's lives are literally on the line. So that's the third day that the fast is over and it says she stood there in the inner court. And don't overlook that phrase in verse 1. And she stood. This was an act of breaking the law. She's risking everything right here. Everything is on the line. And you remember back in chapter 4, because if I had to summarize chapter 4, if you weren't here last week, it was about taking risk for God. And Esther was a little apprehensive at first to take these risks because, well, the king hadn't called for her to show up in like 30 days. And Mordecai, her cousin, says, listen, go to the king, ask for his favor. And she's like, listen, I can't ask for his favor. I don't even know if I have his favor any longer. So I'm not really sure if I should do this. And Mordecai just says it how it is. He's like, Esther, don't think you can escape what's coming. Just because you're the queen, just because you live in the palace, don't live in this delusional mirage of security and falsehood. Bottom line, as Christians, we should. It is right to take risk for God. But oftentimes we're held back from taking risk in our conversations, taking risk with our money. We're we're held back. So we're afraid to witness We're afraid to give. We're afraid to share the gospel. We're afraid to speak truth and stand up for what's right. Lest it jeopardize that mirage of security. That's where Mordecai says, don't think you're going to be safe. Just because you're the queen. Just because you're in this nice little place. Where do you think that security came from in the first place that you prize, that you hold on to? It can be snatched away in an instant. So here's the moment where her risking 
everything for her people, for God. It is the moment of truth here in this story. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The king quickly forgave her. He hasn't seen her in 30 days. Perhaps perhaps he's forgotten just how beautiful she was. But certainly he has some degree of curiosity. He's got no idea why she's there. Why she has broken protocol. I mean, yeah, I could kill her if he wanted to, but he's, if I'm Hashuarius, I'm thinking, she's breaking protocol. I could kill her, like, if I wanted to. So she's going to have a really good reason why she's here. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. Uh, this statement, the half of my kingdom, this would be like, if you've ever had people come over to your house, you're like, hey, come over, anything you want, you just let me know. And by anything, I don't necessarily mean anything, but right, I'm trying to, it's a formal statement kind of of hospitality, or hey, yeah, come over, you, you crash on the couch, you stay as long as you need to, as long as you want to. Um, some of you maybe have done that, and then it's like 10 weeks later, and someone's still living there on your couch, right? But... Um, my point is, is this is, this is, this is essentially what Hashuera, this is what the king is saying to her. It's a, a statement of formality, though it's interesting because Herodotus, the Greek historian, actually notes on one such occasion when Xerxes, which if you're joining us for the very first time, that is his Greek name, which many of us today in 2019 are much more familiar with, thank you, uh, thanks to pop culture. Uh, the story of the 300 Spartans holding off the million-man Persian army at the Pass of Thermopylae, uh, that's the same Xerxes that is actually the king in this story. But Herodotus, the Greek historian, actually notes on one such occasion when he extended this same formality to a woman, and she actually just took advantage of it, and she said, yeah, actually, I would like uh, your royal robe that had been given to you as a gift. It did not go well for her or her family at the conclusion of that story. So, verse 4, he says this, And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. So the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Esther doesn't, and I can understand this, she doesn't want to make her request there in the court. No doubt she, she, she would like to feel more comfortable having a, more of a private audience. And so I totally get that. I understand that makes sense to my mind, at least, why she's not actually telling him in this moment what she actually wants or desires. But why she invites Haman, I don't know. Like, I, don't, I wouldn't have invited Haman. But the king answers her request. And it's interesting, this dynamic between the king and Haman. Like, how did Haman get to this vice presidential type of position there? We, we don't know, but what it does seem to indicate here is the king really was quite dependent upon Haman. He was ready to include him just immediately. He, he viewed Haman as quite important. But why? Why make the king wait? Why delay this even more? 
because that's what she's about to do. Verse 6, And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, Esther, what is your wish? She'll be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, drum roll, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. The delay adds more suspense to the story. I have, I don't know if you're like me, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around this because I'm like, okay, I get it. You don't want to bring up your request when you first see him. You want to have a private audience. You invite him to dinner. I get that. Not sure why you bring Haman, but this seems like the perfect opportunity to just let him know what you want. And she doesn't. She makes the king wait. Why does she make the king wait? Well, I think we first need to take into account the oriental custom and protocol conversation Preparation, they're, they're essential in any port, important transaction within the ancient Near East culture. So you say there may be some cultural dynamics, but, but beyond that, we can also see, I think, an indication of God's wisdom given to Esther that she very well may have sensed that it's not the right time. It's, it's, it's not the right time to make the important request. Maybe she... Maybe she was going to, and then she's there, and she's like, "Mm, I don't know, I feel like this is not the right time. So she asked for the the second meeting. But I I think that's very plausible. She maybe senses it's not the right time, and I think what that does, if that is the case, then it illustrates for us as a good reminder, we need to be sensitive to God's timing. We need to not be impatient with waiting. We need to be okay with delays. And I, I don't know that, I mean, if I took a poll in here, I can't imagine there's a whole lot of you who would say, yes, Joe, my favorite thing is when I have to experience delays. Mm, that just, I love that. Like, no one says that. No one likes delays. No one likes waiting. I think that's what this illustrates for us. That for Esther in this moment, there is wisdom in waiting. And as one commentator notes, the delay here is going to allow time for Haman's misguided self-confidence to mature. And that's important. So we'll say it again for repetition. The delay is going to allow time for Haman's misguided self-confidence to mature. In other words, when we face delays, there are reasons. There are reasons. You might not understand the reason. You might not be aware of the reason, but there's reasons. Now, sometimes the reason is, I really need to grow up and mature and be more responsible with keeping track in time. Okay? That, that could be a very legitimate reason. I am late to everything, and that's kind of rude, and I, I need to not do that, okay? All right? But there's also reasons why. There's reasons here. Because I'm the type of person where patience is something that I struggle with, just being real. 
uh, I am much more of on the side of zealous, decisive, not impulsive, decisive. There's a difference, right? Evaluate the situation. Gets, get, what do you guys think? You know, talk to the battlefield commanders. This is what I'm thinking about doing. What do you think? Any, any problem? Any problem? Let's do this, right? That's just how I am. I tend to be much more zealous, decisive, and so I'm just like, Esther, tell him right now. Like, I'm like, I feel like I'm just like in the story. I'm like, Esther, this would be a great time. But for some reason, she, she pauses. She waits. And I think that that's from God in those moments when you feel that, you know what? I should maybe wait right now in whatever the issue is going on in your life, regardless of whether or not you actually are aware. But the story shifts to Haman at this point, which you're in for a treat because, as I said the other day, I love bad guys. They just, they're like a really good spice or seasoning. They just make the story so much more interesting. So she asks, she runs the delay, right? Can we, we'll just do another feast, another banquet. Okay, no problem. Then we come to verse 9, and it says, And Haman went out that day joyful and glad in heart. Like, I envision him, like, skipping home. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself. And went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow I get to go again. Tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. But it's not enough. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Here's what you do. Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. The idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. The end of chapter 5 is about Haman's happiness. And he has a lot of reasons to be happy. He recounts them for us. In fact, he's super pumped in verse 9 when he leaves the first party. He's super pumped until he he sees Mordecai. He's super pumped, and then that just changes everything. I mean, he recounts all the things going on in his life that are so good. All the, all the really good things. His power, his wealth, his money, his prestige, his position, his family... Everything's going right for Haman. But none of it matters. So long as Mordecai, so long as Mordecai is still around, it doesn't matter. Like, in other words, if only I could get rid of Mordecai, then I'd be happy. 
everything would be perfect, the stars would align. That's, that's the holdup for him. It's the holdup for him in his quest for maybe contentment, you might say. It's a holdup that also plagues Christians. It's a girl I know a few years ago. And she just kept telling me, if only I could just get into a relationship, then everything would be like, okay, manageable. Of course, I told her what you'd expect to hear. And uh, she found a guy who wasn't a Christian. When I once again told her what you'd expect me to tell her, she married him. Six months later, he divorced her. She was so upset, she went out, very uncharacteristically like, hooked up with a guy, one night stand, got pregnant, then her life just imploded. The crazy thing here in this story is that this is Haman's mindset. If only I can just get rid of this guy, Mordecai, then everything will be right. And yet, the irony is, in his quest to get rid of Mordecai, it will be his own undoing. Like my friend. It's a temptation that Haman is not alone in facing. And we battle with this every day, right? And the devil comes, and that's why I always say the devil's mainly about good things, to keep us from the best thing, to keep us from contentment and satisfaction in Christ. And so we chase after these things, right? Thinking that once I get into that relationship, once I get that amount of money, once I get whatever, right? Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be okay. Then everything will be right and it's just not the case, right? And, and so what happens is, is people like Haman, they are chasing after these things despite so many good things going on. They chase after this thing, right? And they never capture it because it's like trying to chase after the wind. You can't catch it. You can't catch it. And as I said, the, the irony is, is that it will be his undoing. He thinks that once he gets rid of Mordecai, and yet it'll be his undoing. And of course, it's not a shocker. The Bible's pretty clear. It has pretty strong language for Haman-like individuals. In Romans 2.5 it says, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. Haman's doing what everyone does. Haman wants to be happy. And this is the point of the sermon where the pastor tells you and draws the distinction between happiness and joy. This is the part of the sermon that happens. Why? I don't know. That's just what we do as Christians. There's the part of the sermon where the ha- it's always, it always happens. I was in a service in North Carolina this summer and I was away with the army. And then they came to the part, and the pastor began saying, you know, something to the effect of, Haman's problem 
or he would have made this application because the text wasn't about this, but Haman's problem is that he wants to be happy, and happiness is based on emotions, and what you really want is joy, because that, that's what you want. So this would naturally be the point in the sermon where I or the pastor would draw a distinction. Once again, I'm not really sure why. It's just that's what we do. However, that's not what I'm going to do at all. Now, I would have done that. You said, Joe, do you believe there's a difference between happiness and joy? Would you draw a distinction? I would have said up until 2015. Yes, absolutely. Why? I don't really know why. I just was taught that growing up in the church. That's why I love opening the Bible, because when you open the Bible, you find all sorts of things that sometimes you're taught in the church, and you're like, eh, that's not really there. Opening the Bible. (sighs) Love it. So I'm listening to Randy Alcorn, a name that I don't normally mention very often. I was actually listening to an Ask Pastor John episode and Randy Alcorn. (laughs) He was was on that day. You're like, that makes so much more sense. (laughs) But I was listening, and Randy Alcorn, he was actually on that day doing a segment. Randy Alcorn's a great guy. If you've never heard of him, that's okay. He, he wrote a really good book called Heaven, um, which I highly recommend if you're interested in learning about heaven. It's, it's way better than The Boy Who Went to Heaven or 90 Minutes in Heaven or The Fish That Went to Heaven or The Dog That Went to Heaven or The Cat That Went to Heaven. Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. Just got to give that a shout out. But he was there that day in 2015 talking about his new book, Happiness. And this is where it just it blew my mind. It blew my mind. Because you would think that if chapter 5 is about Haman, the focus is Haman's happiness. He's only focused on happiness. He needs to be focused on joy. That's the issue. That's the problem. Boom. We did Osaka's now. Not so fast. Because as I listened to Randy Alcorn, he, he started saying things like, one thing you need to realize is that historically... There has been no such distinction in the church or even in the English language between happiness and joy. In fact, you look up in the secular dictionary, say Webster's, and you'll see that joy is defined as happiness and happiness defined as joy. They're synonyms. They have overlapping meanings. You go to church history. You meet Jonathan Edwards, who preached sinners in the hand of an angry God during the Great Awakening. say... Pastor Edwards, do you think there's a distinction between happiness and joy? Happiness is worldly, joy is super spiritual. And he'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, historically, there has never been such a distinction within the church. Yet, if you ask most Christians, they would say, absolutely. I'd say, why? They'd be like, I don't know. I just taught that. Church history offers no such teaching. In fact, in John chapter 15, 11, it says... Jesus says this, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And Edwards, commenting on this verse, says, The happiness Christ gives to his people is a participation of his own happiness. He didn't say, And by happiness, what I really mean is joy. Nope. Nope, he didn't didn't say that. To, to get more of the point when it comes to church history, Richard Baxter would say the day of death is to true believers of happiness and joy. And by happiness, I don't even know why I said that. I just meant joy. Nope, he didn't say that either. And then, of course, there's Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, who again would say over and over again, the more often I preached, the more joy I found in the happy service of Christ And by happy service of Christ, I really just mean joy. I don't know why I said that. No, that wasn't in my notes either. That's just church history. 
someone says, Joe, that's just church history. What you got to do is you got to look at the Bible. I'm so glad you mentioned that. <laughs> well, no, no, none of that ESV stuff. No problem. I got the NIV all queued up right there. Esther chapter 816. I know, you never thought I'd use the NIV and its gender neutral pronouns. Notice what it says here. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. And what you won't find in the very next verse is the narrator saying, and by happiness, what I actually meant was joy. No. And then there's the Holman Standard Christian Bible, Jeremiah 31, 13. Right there, perfect. I will turn their mourning into joy, give them consolation, and bring happiness out of grief. And by happiness, what I really mean is just joy. No, it doesn't say that. Then, New Living Translation, Proverbs 23, 25. Last verse I want to give to you. So give your father and mother joy. May she who gave you birth be happy. And by happiness, well, of course, what we really mean is joy. And in fact, you look at over 100 verses in Bible translations. I don't mean like the message. I mean Bible translations with Hebrew and Greek scholars. And they use happiness and joy together interchangeably. I think there's actually, Randy Alcorn mentioned, 22 primary Hebrew words, 15 primary Greek words, all interchangeable. Isn't that just amazing? Especially when you get into the Psalms, like the parallelisms that you use, sometimes you'll have four different Hebrew words for happiness, joy, gladness of heart, all in the same verse. It would be like this. If you're lost, let me just break it down in English for you. It would be like if I said, it is a bright, beautiful, sunny day, the sky is blue. Can you picture that? It's a bright, beautiful, sunny day, the sky is blue. No one would say, Joe is saying two totally different opposite things. No one would say that. You'd say, I'm saying the same thing. It's a bright, beautiful, sunny day, the sky is blue. And so, at that point... I'm like, well, then where do we get this idea that happiness is this terrible thing and joy is this great Christian thing? And Randy Alcorn's answer to this was Oswald Chambers, as far as he could find. And I love Oswald Chambers. You know, he wrote my utmost for his highest. But he seems to be the very first theologian that comes on in this very dramatic anti-happiness fashion to draw this distinction. Um... And you could say, all right, what does it even really matter? What does it matter? And I would say, I think it does. Because the Bible is indiscriminate in its use of the language of happiness and joy, contentment and satisfaction. It's indiscriminate. That's how the Bible talks. And for us to start assigning meanings to words that don't actually mean that, you run the risk of making the Bible say anything. It's a problem. But beyond that, I I think you run even a bigger risk. And that is, you inadvertently push people away from happiness. Because you you talk about happiness as this bad thing, and joy is this unemotional, because happiness changes with your emotions, that's what they say, right? And joy is this unemotional, like transcendent thing. Happiness, a worldly thing, and then people are like, well, I want to be happy, I I don't like the sound of that. And sometimes, even beyond that, we inadvertently can push people away from the gospel. Because when you look to, say, Isaiah 52, 7, I don't know if we got that on there. 
You look at, say, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. The early context of Messiah's redemptive work. It calls the gospel the good news of happiness. It calls it the good news of happiness. See, Haman here, he is experiencing some degree of happiness. In fact, for all you joy lovers, which would be me too, verse 9, and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Okay? Happiness, joy, gladness of heart. Haman here is experiencing some degree of happiness and joy. Non-Christians can do that. Non-Christians can experience, can experience some degree of happiness and joy. For example, when, uh, I don't know, say a non-Christian takes a walk in the woods. Fall, leaves are everywhere. It's really nice, really pretty. He sees the beauty. Marvels at it. Wow. And he may in his own way even celebrate the beauty. The, the happiness that he experiences comes from the hand of God. All the things that Haman has mentioned that he has, where do you think they came from? It's come from the hand of God. The difference is this, and Chesterton says it so well. The non-Christian sees beauty. The difference is he has no one to thank, thus no one to be happy in. That's the difference. The non-Christian can experience all these things. He can see beauty in nature. He has no one to thank, thus no one to be happy in. The fact that people don't believe in God like Haman doesn't change the fact that God is the source of all happiness. The real tragedy, because it is a tragedy, it occurs when someone dies. They die apart from Christ and they go to hell because hell is the one place in the universe from where God is not present except his wrath. And as a result, he's cut off from happiness. No God, no happiness. No God, no good. That is why when you, you come to say Psalms chapter 32, verse 1, it says, blessed, that, that Hebrew word is asher, very common word, no shocker here. It means happy. Thus it says, happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. And then in verse 2, it once again says, blessed or happy is the one whose transgressions are not counted against him. See, now that you're made right with God, you have that deep reality-based happiness. It's based upon the truth that you're made right with God. The God of Scripture who created you, and oh, by the way, He wired you to want happiness, to seek after happiness. That's how He made you. That's how He made all people. But up until now, up until your sins are forgiven, you've been trying to satisfy your happiness like Haman, who's got a lot going for him. You've been trying to satisfy your happiness like Haman. That is true for every non-Christian. And find it in all these dead-end streets when it can only truly be found in God. And of course, Haman's problem is the world's problem. The world is 
chasing after happiness, joy, gladness of heart. They are. That's the problem of the world. God's wired us to be happy. The world is chasing after this. They're looking for this, right? They're looking for for this so much so that C.S. Lewis, and I used this illustration, I don't know, six weeks ago, but it's timely. He says, they're like kids playing in the ghetto in a rough neighborhood making mud pies. I did this like one time when I was a little boy, I think. Maybe you did too. You got like the cutout Tupperware thing, fill it with mud. Looks like a little cake. But that's the image. Lewis says, they're like kids in the ghetto making mud pies and they have no idea what it means to take a holiday out to sea. In other words, they are far too easily pleased. They have been blinded by, 1 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world, who oftentimes, as I've already said, he's about good things to keep you from seeing the best thing. And so they're there in the mud, in the dirt, like Haman, looking for the next thing to make them happy. If I get a relationship with a boy, the stars will align. Or a girl. Or a job. Or that, that, that raise, that money, the house, the whatever. That's the trap. That's the lie. And Lewis says they're far too easily pleased. In other words, the problem with Haman-like individuals is not that their desire to be happy is too strong. It's too weak. It's pathetically weak. You should have a desire to be happy. You should have the strongest possible desire. But far too often you settle for trinkets and trivialities like Haman. Those temptations are real. Whether you're an 18-year-old freshman or a pastor or a grandparent or whatever. To look to those things. See, up until now, the non-Christian, they have been trying to find their happiness in everything other than God. That's the issue. That's the issue for Haman. And sometimes that's the issue even for Christians. And we fall into this thinking, right? We follow this delusional thinking that if I can just get rid of this guy, Mordecai, whatever he represents in my life, then I'll be happy. I'll be content. I'll be okay. And you might be for a little while, but it won't last because the only thing that can bring you true, lasting happiness and joy, gladness of heart, is Christ. He is the seven-day, seven-night Mediterranean cruise. And the temptation is to be in the ghetto making the mud pies. Why would you stay in the ghetto making the mud pies? Go get on the cruise ship. Don't buy into that lie. The lie that ultimately will unravel Haman and bring about his downfall. There's a reason that the psalmist says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. There is fullness of joy. Not, there is just kind of a partiality of joy and happiness. Yeah, like a 50-50 blend. No, there's fullness. There's total happiness, total contentment, total satisfaction. Do you see it? (coughs) Well, when you look at the cross, you're like, ah, that's boring. I've heard that Sunday school story before. Oh, you're an Esther. Uh, I've heard that story before. Whatever, right? 
And when you think of the cross and you think of Jesus and you think of what he did for you, it's not boring. It's breathtakingly beautiful. And no matter what happens, I know everything else will be fine as long as I have Christ. There's a reason the psalmist says, you make known to me the path of life. There's another path. And Haman's not on it. It is tugging on the hearts of even Christians to pull you off the path, to offer you partiality of joy and happiness. Don't buy into it. Don't go down that road, brothers and sisters. Tugs at my heart. So I know it must tug at yours too. There is nothing but death that awaits Haman and those like him. And so my prayer is that we would find our total happiness, our total contentment, our total satisfaction in Christ, even if that, whatever that is, never happens for me. So that's tough. That's, that's a big pill to swallow. I know. Which is why I'm so thankful that there's a God who can speak the universe into existence, who can help you swallow that. So as the team comes, I want to pray for us. Lord, I pray that you would break us from our Haman-like tendencies that pull us from the path of life. God, help us to be okay with whatever difficulty, with whatever hardship, with whatever thing we may really desire that it might be a really good thing. Help us to be okay. Help us to join with Paul as he says, I count everything as loss as compared to knowing Christ. I lose everything, including my life. That's okay, because I get gain. I don't just want that, Lord, to be words for me or for my brothers and sisters here. I want us to experience that glorious, beautiful reality. Oh, that we might go to you to find fullness of joy. Oh, that we might go to you, the source of all infinite and everlasting joy and happiness. That's my prayer, Jesus. Protect us from the temptations that lure us away from the path of life. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.